souls. They have different designs. And that's on all levels, physical, spiritual, and emotional. That is conditional. There's a whole lot of conditions there. The Bible says it's a covenant. And it is unconditional. The culture says it's all about me, my desires, my fulfillment. The Bible says it's a sacrificial love lived based on the design of the other person. Culture says it's about feelings and emotions. The Bible says it's about choice and sacrificial and selfless activity. The culture says it's all about me. The Bible says it's all about Jesus. We sang that about worship. So I think as the church, it's time for us to rise up and speak the truth, to live the truth, to do civil disobedience in terms of the laws of our land and how we live. And it might not be a technical law, but it's one of those laws that everyone says, yeah, this is the way it should be. There's a hunger for healthy relationships. And I think there is widespread ignorance about what the Bible says, even inside the church. Most of what we hear today inside the church is what I call therapeutic models based on our culture. It's a Hollywood version of love. And so we end up adopting cultural roles that suit us. And that puts us not in Genesis 2, but it puts us in Genesis 3. It's where our relationships were cursed. And we see the fall based upon not taking those roles upon us. But let's settle on some truths. The first truth we know is we're all sinners. So marriage is two imperfect people coming into something that God designed to become one flesh. Now one flesh is both pieces of the equation are equal but not the same. They have different designs. They were created for different reasons and different roles. And flesh is just not our bodies, but it's everything a person that exists. So often we reduce this to having a sexual relationship. But when the two fleshes come together, it creates a third entity. It's not like if we're going to bake some chocolate chip cookies, we take some cookie dough and we mix in some chocolate chips and we stir those together. You still have the chocolate chips and you still have the cookie dough. But this one flesh is where two compounds, when they come together, they create something new. But it's two flawed people that enter into a permanent, legally binding covenant to share their lives with each other. And that requires, according to Scripture, different roles. That's why it says, wives, respect your husbands. And it says, husbands, love your wives. Now, this does not mean that the wives are not to love their husbands and the husbands are not to respect their wives. I mean, we get silly when we start doing those kinds of arguments. But why? Why are wives to respect and why are husbands to love? The answer is what men and what women are good at are difference. And the question we have to ask ourselves when you read Genesis chapter 2 and when you read what Paul says, is there a difference between maleness and femaleness that goes beyond the physical, that moves into all other aspects of who we are? Now, what's interesting is, even from a secular society, everyone knows, yes, there is differences, but nobody wants to admit it. Carol Gilligan, and again, she's not a believer, 
wrote a book called In a Different Voice in 1982, and it's compiled research and it's being verified today on multiple levels. She insisted that men and women are inherently different on multiple levels. For instance, she studied the business world. She says, put them both in the same position, let's say a CEO of a business, and men view themselves as mature, as growing, as true leaders when they're independent and separate. She found out that women see themselves as mature, growing leaders when they're interdependent upon each other. So men have the gift of independence and women have the gift of interdependence. And again, it doesn't mean that men cannot be in, interdependent and women can't be independent. That's not what it means. It's talking about general tendencies. And it's why when you get into a situation, the men say, okay, here it is. And women say, wait, we got to bring everybody else into the conversation. This also explains why, and they talk about this, that when a man loses a spouse, there's nothing there for him to interrelate. And he goes out and has to get married right away because he is so lonely. And it's why women are not so much in a hurry because they have a network already built and they draw from. And again, there's other reasons we're not going to get into, but it's just one of the illustrations. So what happens today is we get lost in the conversation. We say which one's right and which one's wrong. And we turn into an and both. I mean, we turn into an either or rather than and both. And what is the right way to approach those kinds of things in, this, in business? Well, it depends. There are times someone needs to make the call. And there are times you need to draw a team in and do the whole interrelated thing. So her research indicates that men and women have very different callings and relationships. And again, we don't need secular research to prove the Bible. I mean, we already know this to be true, but I find it fascinating when people outside of the Bible, again, really confirm what God has said all along. Now, here's another illustration about general dif differentials. They found out the boy babies, okay, when they start walking, you put an obstacle in front of them, what do they do? They just push it over. They go right through it. Girl babies, when they start walking, you put an obstacle there, what do they do? They walk around it. Who teaches them that? Girl babies at six months, they found when they hear jazz, their heart rate goes up. Boy babies, when they hear jazz, nothing happens. Who teaches them this? And again, there's mounting evidence that when you get into a monogamous relationship, it brings, yes, emotional benefits to all kinds of adults, just not the married couple, but to the kids, to the neighbors, to coworkers. But think about the consequences in our culture today. We now have more single-parent homes due to the, mis the misapplication of men and women we now have more single-parent homes than two-parent homes. And when you add the divorce rate in the two-parent homes and how we attempt to redefine marriage and to fit it to our reality, it really indicates that we do not know how to live with, live with each other very well. Now, the world struggles with this. When they hear about love and submission, equal but different, they think it's oppressive. They think it's abusive to think this way. And if you notice in our culture today, abuse is one of those catchwords that help us justify our thinking and action. 
I remember a teenager that was quite distressed and she was accusing her parents of being abusive and she was in tears. And what we discovered after trying to pull this information out of her and her parents is that they had a 12 o'clock curfew and she wanted to stay out till 3 a.m. And what I'm concerned about today is that we delegitimize real abuse when we have this catch-all. This catch-all is if the other person does not fulfill my needs and desires, then I'm abused and I'm going to move on. So let's go back to these words. Let's talk about submit and head in the context of why submit and husband's love. Now the word head or headship or authority, it means two things. The first thing it means is that we complete one another. Think of it this way. A body cannot exist without a head. And a head cannot exist without a body. So when Genesis says, I will create a helper, and the word helper is probably not a good word, because we think at times, you know, how we have little kids, and we think about daddy's little helper, and conjures up this idea that one tells the other what to do, and they have no say in it. That's not what it means. First, we have to understand this word help or helper is predominantly used of God. God is our help, our refuge and strength in times of trouble. But the first thing it does, it implies there's something deficient. It implies there's something missing. And I know wives at home are already amening that one. Just knock it off for a moment. We'll get into your part. Second, it implies that the helper has a power or resource that the helpee does not have. Think of it this way. You cannot help someone unless you have something they do not have. And so this helper, this helpee, God is our help. They come alongside and empower the other person. Now, the reverse is true as well. Not only does the helper have something for the helpee, the helpee has something for the helper. That's the first part. It means that they complete one another. The second is the word authority. And think about breaking this word down. We think about author, source. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, if in an English class we were debating a poem as to its meaning, and there's all these opinions, all these ideas, and in the middle of the debate walks in the author, he listens and he says, I will tell you what this means. He has the authority to do that. Why? Because he is the source. He has the authority to speak to the meeting. Now, what this word head or authority means is that Adam was the source. We read in Genesis, the woman was taken out of him. He was made ex nihilo, out of dust. She was made out of Adam. Eve was taken out of Adam. And ladies, if you get upset with that, take it up with God. He is the one who created you. So he is the head, as Christ is the head. Christ formed the church. God formed the woman out of Adam. Now when you think about he's the head, as Christ is the head, we have to understand that Christ rewrote the concept of power. When you think about Christ as the head of the church, even though he was God, as Philippians says, he did not count himself as equal to God, but humbled himself. And what does he do to rewrite authority? He grabs a basin and he starts washing feet. And I love the question at the end of that scene. He says to the disciples and to us, 
Do you know what I have done? And of course they don't because they're still arguing over the kingdom of God is going to conquer Rome and they're going to be in positions of power. That's power over. But when we practice authority, men, as Christ practiced authority of the church, it is power with to come alongside. You know, the Holy Spirit was given a name called comforter. That's what it means to come alongside. And what that means is you have to view your spouse, your wife, as a gift. And she has to view you as a gift. So that's how God created it. And along comes Genesis 3, and the gift is distorted by sin. And the conflict and struggle is for power over, not power with. But here's what happens when we take matters into our own hands. See, in Genesis 3, after they questioned God's authority and God's truth, did God really say, they both violated their roles. They took matters into their own hands. And there's a consequence. Now, one of the consequences was found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what God says to both of them. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, in the Hebrew, the word desire and the word rule are identical words. And here's what this means. God says, listen, as long as you take matters into your own hands, as long as you want to defy my truth, as long as you want to defer the roles that I put in place in Genesis 2, you will be locked into a power struggle. He will try to win over you, and she will try to win over you. And physically, he says, in this Hebrew passage, the man will win most of the time. That's why when you study historically cultures, there's been a lot of male domination, and we see the truth of that. But in the church, we are not this way. We lose any concept of head and submission if we don't go back to Genesis 2. Where here's God's design, here are God's roles. In Genesis 3, if we do it's all about me, we're going to use our God-given differences to destroy each other. And I have witnessed men who use their fists and physically power over their wives. And I have witnessed women who use their words to strip every and any sense of dignity from their husbands. And when you move from the biblical model, both sexes have the power to destroy each other. That's what this means. And again, it doesn't mean that women don't use their fists and men don't use their words. Just talking about general tendencies, and we see that historically. So that's the word head or authority, and we have to understand that because men, it says that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church, and we know that he died for that. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But let's talk about submission. Now, in Ephesians, both are called to submit, but... Throughout Scripture, women are singled out to submit. And you have to ask yourself, why? Now, let me tell you what this does not mean. First, it does not mean unconditional obedience. We saw that in Acts chapter 5. We know Romans 13, obey the government. But Peter comes along and says, listen, you know, you, you tell us we can't preach Jesus. We're sorry. We can't do that because God says we need to. So in this whole submission... Women, it does not mean if your husband comes along and says, hey, I want you to be a drug mule, that you have to do that. That is not what this means. It's not unconditional obedience. 
we first subject ourselves to God and then to human authority. Secondly, it does not mean that you do not adopt a consensus model of decision-making. Again, I've witnessed men who adopted my way or the highway method. You know, here's what I said. On the man, you listen, you have to submit. I've also witnessed women who manipulate their husbands. My way or the highway, and if you don't do what I want, well, listen. There's a whole lot of payback for that one. That's the tendency of the curse. I have to get my way. But biblically, in Genesis 2, it really talks about a consensus model. We come along and we help those people. We help them to be good at what they are not good at. That's why the different roles. Third, it does not say that all women should submit to all men. Again, the picture is marriage. The Bible is very realistic. Can you imagine today if single women had to submit themselves to all the men in culture? I mean, think about how sin has distorted the image of God. Can you imagine the disruption of society if we made this a principle for those outside of marriage? And yet, I've seen that in some very legalistic churches that require that out of their non-married women. But that's not what it means. It's always in the context of marriage. But here's what it does mean. Let me say two things. You probably will agree with the one and you might put a question mark on the other. It means wives respect your husbands. It does not say respect them if they earn it. It says use your submission to help your husband become everything that God wants him to be. So here's the second thing. What does this mean? It means that when you can't agree that you're in this consensus model and you guys just cannot come to a decision on this, it means that someone has to break the tie and that men get to break the tie. That submission means you defer that. Now, again, I need to say this. This is the exception, not the rule. This should not be happening every day or every week or every month. I think in a lifelong marriage, it might happen as many times as you can count on one hand. Let me give an illustration. I hope this makes sense. My wife and I have been in ministry, and we've always had somewhat of a consensus model as to where we've gone and where we've ended up. But I remember, you know, I served in a church planning board. I always wanted to try it, always thought about it, always prayed about it. And my wife knew that I wanted to try it. And I knew also she was not particularly in favor of it. But we talked a while, and when a situation came up, final decision was made, and it was really deferred to me. And in that church planning, it was some of our hardest times we ever experienced. It was also some of the most fruitful times. But during those times, she never once said, you know what, I knew this was a bad idea. We should have never done this. But that was something we discussed over years. So let me sum it up this way. Our calling, whether it's male or female, whether it's headship or submission, is to see this world through the eyes of each other. That's the calling of marriage. And men, if you're in Christ, you never use your authority to get your own way. You never use your authority to get your own pleasure. You never lord over her. You never force her into submission for anything. You use your authority to love your wife, 
to make her blameless and spotless before God. Ephesians talks about that. You use your authority to help her become the glory of God. And women, if you're in Christ, you never use your submission to berate, belittle, or manipulate your husband. You use your submission to respect him, to come alongside, to be Christ to him. But here's where we get into trouble. We think that everyone should think and act just like me. Because it makes sense to me. It's how I'm wired. And we forget different roles. We're each wired differently. And we need to listen to those roles. And so what we do in marriage is we attempt to form them in our image and not the image of Christ. But see, Christ was both perfect in his submission to his father and he was perfect in his authority with his father. And with his submission and authority, he made a way for us to confess our sin, free, our, free us from our sin, and to help others find life in Christ. So how do we wrap all this up? First, we have to realize that most of what we understand in terms of marriage is not about us. Even inside the church, we are very selfish on multiple levels. And we have to realize that much of our thinking and living is more cultural than biblical, and it gets us into trouble. I think about past situations when the church was very legalistic with the men and male authoritative, and now it's just a new form of legalism we call freedom. And we see women adopting those roles that men used to have and doing the very thing to them that they claimed they didn't want done to them. Secondly, we have to understand that men and women are different yet equal in value. I realize it goes against our culture, but um, everyone's born in the image of God, which means everyone has the same value. But God does give us different gifts. He gives us different talents. He gives us different roles. And just because we're in a particular role does not mean we're devalued. Third, if you want to find a healthy marriage, find your fulfillment in Christ. That's where it begins. If you're looking for marriage to be your savior, you will be in trouble. If you're looking Christ for, to be your savior, that is a place to start. Now, I want to close by adding something that I'm currently working on. And I'm just curious if, if anybody would be interested in being part of this. I'm currently working on a course that deals with how do you move from unhealthy thinking and living to healthy thinking and living when it comes to relationships. And that's both inside marriage and outside marriage. I'm curious what kind of interest there would be. If you have interest in that, contact me or the office. Kind of raise your hand and tell us. Not now because I can't see you. Is this something you'd be interested in? And again, hear me on this. This is not a typical marriage class. This is not for a marriage tune-up. This is about restoring our souls, restoring our biblical thinking and voice in a culture that just strips us of everything of who we are. It's about rebuilding what it really means to be in a relationship. Let me pray with you. Father God, this is a very touchy subject in our culture, and I think the reality that we've bought into cultural models just is an indication of why it's so touchy. Your word is clear, and your word brings value. It, it restores, it heals, and it says it's a mystery, and we get that because we can't always figure it out. And yet, you take two flawed people, and you put them together, and you watch how they grow. And we realize it won't be perfected until we see you face to face. 
But we live inside that covenantal relationship and we learn what it means to respect and love and we learn what it means to submit and we learn what it means to be Christ and to help present our wives spotless and blameless. We learn what it means just to take ourself aside and not get caught in that power struggle. So help us, Lord. I pray that you take your word this morning and may the Holy Spirit interpret it where I did a poor job of that. And may we just learn to see you in everything. In your name we pray. Amen.